Welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. I think it was the legendary poetry publisher Gus Ferguson who said that it's important to leave a mistake in every book because it gives readers such immense pleasure to spot them. Of course, as humans, we don't struggle to leave errors in our books. Books are enormously complex creations. If you think about it, in a 60,000-word book, at least 60,000 different things can go wrong. And they seem to crop up, not just in patches, but in layers, so that finding them is a kind of archaeology. You'll clear a bunch away, return the next day, and with yesterday's layer cleared, unearth new ones, over and over again. It takes immense repeated effort to dig them all out. And importantly, it takes a team. The author will clean up their own work as best they can, helped along by spellcheck. Then agents and publishers will note a few they missed and introduce some new ones. A copy editor will prize out several hundred more as they work more closely with the text. And finally, a proofreader. That great underappreciated last line of defense will scan every word and surprise everyone by finding an error on every page in even the best prepared manuscripts. I've never known an extroverted proofreader. They tend to be quiet, unsung heroes. Perhaps that's why they are so underappreciated and why their corner of publishing has seen so little innovation. For the most part, they work with pencils and colored pens and a trusty stack of the great publishing reference books. Chicago, Oxford, Butcher, Bringhurst. Today, they're being asked more often to mark up corrections on screen in PDF, in the hope that that'll speed things up. And I can't tell quite why, but I've long had an uneasy sense that PDFs aren't helping. So, I wanted to talk to someone who's thought more about this than almost anyone, Editor, geek, and entrepreneur John Pettigrew, the founder of Future Proofs. A scientist by training, bookmaker by profession, an entrepreneur by compulsion, John thinks deeply and sensibly about publishing and technology. Every time I read his posts or talk to him, I come away feeling reassured about the future of fine bookmaking. John, so nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Thanks for inviting me. I am really enjoying having conversations with people who are involved in all different parts of bookmaking. And you've been making books for over 20 years. So tell me where that began. I am curious in particular about your studies, which were not in publishing. Yeah, well, I... I mean, like a lot of people, I went to publishing out of university. Um, I'd done my degree and then I did a PhD. I'm a scientist by training, biochemistry, molecular genetics, that kind of stuff. And to get a PhD, you have to make an original contribution to human knowledge. And mine was that I don't like lab work and I'm not very good at it, but I did like reading about it. It's kind of an axiom that researchers hate writing up, but love doing the lab work. I hated the lab work and loved doing the writing up. And that was a kind of an early hint that perhaps, you know, books and stuff would would be a place for me to go. And particularly when I wrote my thesis and 
it was on the shelf next to the others, and it was literally half the size of any other thesis on my supervisor's shelf. Unfortunately, I've gone, I, I, I got the PhD, and that was fine. And it's one of those, yeah, actually, tight writing is something that I'm kind of good at. And so I, I thought, yeah, maybe publishing is a place to go. And it took me about nine months to get my first publishing job. This was back in the mid-late 90s. That was working for Elsevier. I was what they call an assistant editor. So I was doing the whole process after commissioning and acceptance, taking the journal articles through to publication. And what I particularly loved about that job, I was there for about only about three years in the end because they made me redundant because they moved the office, was it was a review journal, which meant that there were commissioned articles that were trying to explain particular topics to an audience of it was specialists, but it was everyone from, you know, the one professor in the world who really understands it down to undergraduates who need to learn it, which meant that the content was carefully written. It had to be right. It had to be researched. It had to be accessible to people. It had to be understandable and stuff. So it took good editing. You know, you had, unlike a lot of primary research, which is kind of a sausage mill, um, we, were, we were actually paying attention to the content. And I loved that. Taking something, taking a subject people, the writers were passionate about because it was their life's work and helping them to to make it understandable, to make it make other people more aware of it. Primarily, I mean, this was in the days of galley proofs. And we actually, you know, on occasion, we even, I remember taking a craft knife to film in the office at the last minute as they had to move something around or correct it. But very quickly, we moved to on-screen editing. And For someone who's never seen film, uh, <laughs> let's describe that, because I suspect quite a few people who've been publishing for the last 10 years might never have seen film yeah well this it was an intermediate stage after all the typesetting had been done and the typesetting was done on computers at this point but you you output instead of just sending a pdf to the printer it had to be output onto and it did go through pdf but it had to be output onto a big piece of transparency basically a transparent piece of plastic of film and on that was the stuff that you were going to were going to print and then that piece of film is what was used to create the image on the paper but because you had a piece of film, right at that last stage, if there was a mistake that somebody spotted, obviously you don't want to spot a mistake at that stage, you could edit the film because you could physically cut a bit out and paste the new bit in. But it was uh, a delicate task, not something you did lightly. <laughs> so from my early kind of experience as an editor was it was all about high stakes, high quality content. That was kind of what it was about. And that's what I've always loved about being an editor. And now, as I say, I'm kind of recovering editor these days is how I describe myself. You moved from journal publishing into books specifically. Were they very different? I suppose to you, they weren't very different because of the kind of journal publishing you were doing. I'd say I was at Elsevier for about three years. I was very fortunate, kind of as you say, that first my first publishing job landed me somewhere that just it, it clicked. It was It was right. And it was a great team as well. After that, I was actually a freelancer for about six years, which meant I was working for a whole load of different things, whatever someone would pay me. But I was still doing a lot of work on the same kinds of high quality journals because that's where I had my contacts. But after about six years of that, I'd kind of enjoyed being by myself and having you know control. But after a while, I just felt I needed people around. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're, we're recording this in the kind of in the middle of COVID kind of crisis and. It wasn't a deliberate choice, really, but I ended up working for an education publisher uh, doing school textbooks. But as you say, it was, it was the same kind of approach. It's that high stakes content. 
um, that, you know, particularly, you know, school textbooks, I, I, I love doing, working on that kind of stuff because, you know, it's really important. Education is, is an important thing. And if you're producing a good resource, you're going to help someone get on in their life. They're going to get the better results and this kind of thing. Yeah. So, yes, that, that was, I loved that. That was really the kind of place that started leading me on this slightly divergent path eventually over years, kind of gradually step by step to, to not being an editor anymore, which is slightly odd. Absolutely. So at some stage, you must have become more interested in technology and what that might offer. How did your technology roots and entrepreneurial ventures begin from all of this? I've always been a bit of a geek. I mean, editors, we tend to have a bit of a nerdy tinge to us because we're very detailed people. But it was in within the first year or so, it was quite evident. Back in This was back in the, well, it would have been mid-noughties. We were publishing textbooks. So all textbooks had a CD in the back of them because digital resources were the thing. You had to have digital resources. So we were doing that. And we were starting to do, okay, well, actually, we need to have a website as well now because, or instead, and how do we do that? And a lot of people in the in the team were not really experienced at handling any of that kind of technology. And I'd done a bit. I'd done a bit of internet stuff back in the 90s because I was in my 30s at that point, you know. And so I started helping people out with this, that, and the other. And it gradually ended up being more and more that I was the techie one in the group, more by accident than by design. But we were, you know, new stuff was happening, the iPhone and the iPad and this kind of stuff. And the business started going, oh, well, we have to do something cool with apps because everyone's doing cool apps. We did an iPhone app, which literally went nowhere. We did we produced the app and it was great. It was repurposing old content, taking quiz content from our English as a second language stuff and kind of gamifying it a bit with the quizzes and stuff. But that just dropped off a cliff. And then a year, couple of years after that, the mandate came down that we had to do iPad apps. And so I worked with the academic group, took, taking XML resources about the, the Shakespeare scripts that we had and all of the assets the education group had around the interactivity and performance and photos and audio and this kind of stuff and putting them into an app. We worked with um, Dave Addy and his team at Agant's. We won some real acclaim from people like The Guardian. We were in their top 50 apps of the year, two years running with those, which was lovely. Again, commercially, they dropped off a cliff because the publishers didn't know how to sell them. It was a very different way of selling. But I learned a lot about putting products together because putting a book together, we kind of have done that. We've done that over and over and over and over again. We knew how the budgets worked. We knew how the timing was going to work. We knew how the workflow was going to be. But doing some of these digital products, you don't know any of those things. So it was really exciting and interesting learning how to put some of those things together. And at the same time, some of those answers in the traditional workflow were starting to break down. Now, as, as I alluded to, when I started in my journals publishing back in the 90s, the manuscripts would come in as typescripts, sometimes even as manuscripts literally handwritten. They would have go and be rekeyed and you'd have to edit. We would edit on paper and stuff. And on-screen editing had come in and everything was done in Microsoft Word up front. You know, that was great. And I wouldn't want to do editing without search and replace. You know, that, that would be horrendous. But we were everything was still, particularly the proofreading stages, everything was still happening on paper. Right. Big piles of paper being posted around the world, which to that point had worked really, really well because it's well understood. It's very clear. The paper is how it's going to be produced ultimately anyway. So kind of looking at it on paper makes sense. But the commercial pressures were increasing on us as on all publishers and that's just accelerated and we're being asked to do more more quickly with fewer people 
for less money. And you can't do all of those things without changing how you go about stuff. And some stuff we could we could use more outsourcing, blah, blah, blah. But one of the big sticking points was proofreading because the proofreading stage cannot be skipped. There's no good producing a school textbook if the answers to the questions are wrong or if the explanations are wrong. And all of these things have happened. There are some horror stories out there about whole print runs being pulped because there's a mistake. So you have to do it. And for a textbook that's around, you know, 240, 300 pages, the whole production schedule might be about nine months long. Ideally, a little bit longer, but we like nine months. Of that, about four months was proofreading. And for those who don't know the publishing process very well, where does proofreading fit in? Yeah, so, you know, it's been written, it's been sent in, it's been, it's gone through a process of development where, you know, either an in-house commissioning editor or a, a, an out, someone out of house has gone through it with the author in some detail, looking at structure, looking at how things are explained and where do you need more examples and where do we need artworks and what should they be and all this kind of stuff to make sure it's kind of as good as it can be. After that, you copy edit it. So the text has come in, but you need to go through and look at the detail. You know, do the paragraphs actually make sense? Does it flow properly that the, the points build one onto another? Are, are the technical terms used consistently? Um, is the spelling right? Is the grammar right? You know, is, is it pitch and appropriate level? All of those kinds of things. And all of the artworks have to be properly and fully briefed. So you've got to write a really good description of every artwork and where it needs to go. Every question needs to be checked. The answer's correct. All of the detail needs to be sort of gone through. And once it's copy edited and corrected, it goes off to somebody to typeset. Previous to that, you've done a design. So you've, you've come up with how it's going to look, how it's going to appear on page and be structured. And you have to, someone's going to take that design and put the real content into it, into a whole book. Usually in design, because it's generally design-led content. XML is great at the things it's good at and terrible at the things it's bad at. <laughs> That's a great description. Educational content and you know, a lot of trade nonfiction is non-structured or only partially structured. Um, so it's quite hard to fit into a template. I know there's a lot of work, really interesting work going on about that, but it's still primarily in design there. But once you've done that, that's only the beginning of the checking process because that's where proofreading kicks in. Classically, proofreading is checking that the input equals the output. So has everything in the manuscript, in the copy edited TypeScript actually appeared in the typeset book? Are there any sections missing? Has anything got the wrong style? Is it in the wrong order? But realistically, you expect your proofreader to do a lot more than that, to do the same job as a copy editor did, to check mm. that same detail of actually, you know, second set of eyes, second proper read. Does it all make sense? Checking it again. Also, they're going to be looking at, at a much higher level to look at the page and go, does that page work? As a designed object, is the artwork the right size or would it be better if it was a bit thinner or half the size or on the other column or something like that? You know, does it work? Is the layout correct? Or is the page balanced? Or are the answers near the questions? Um, all sorts of stuff that needs to be checked. And then, of course, they also need to consider what's going to happen as a result of your requested change. If I make that artwork smaller, I have to fill the space with something. Or if I make it bigger... The stuff that used to be there has to go somewhere else. Where is it going to go? How do I make space? So you're often checking text flow, fits, you know, all sorts of stuff around structure and stuff. And all of those things are encapsulated in what we tend to call proofreading. 
It's basically the whole QA of the typeset object. And in most publishers, it varies enormously the number of stages you go through. Some publishers get away with two, and that tends to be simpler content novels and business books and stuff where you haven't got a lot of complexity. So they will check it once, get it corrected, a new version comes back, you'll check again, maybe make a few tweaks, but then you're hoping to sign it off and it's going to go. Education stuff and trade nonfiction, high quality magazine type content, three or four sets of proofs. I do know publishers who habitually hit a dozen even more sets of proofs, and that drives me nuts. That's kind of a red flag for a process problem. Yes, exactly that. It's a case of what, there's no reason to be doing all of that at this expensive stage of the process because this is post-InDesign. Changes are now quite expensive to make their manual. They involve a lot of tweaking. Now, really, if it's a content change, it should have been caught earlier. You can change it in the Word file, and then when you typeset it, you only have to do that work once. And this is kind of, in a sense, it overlaps. As I know, you know, you folk at um, Electric Bookworks have a not, are heavily into the automated workflows where you can make structural changes in the source file and hopefully it all pours through into a, an automated output. But, um, you know, there's always a manual element anyway. So, you know. Even with our process, we have to check proofs, PDFs, to make sure that output is correct. And then often a human will have to intervene for that last 5 or 10% of layout that the machine can't yeah. handle. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, it's one of the great things over the last 25 years in publishing has been seeing the appropriate use of technology come into the work we do. As the, I'm an immense believer in the value that human beings bring to the process, which is almost why I don't think you should be wasting that human skill and passion, checking that there are no double spaces in the whole document manually one at a time. <laughs> Search yep. in your place. You know, yep. Use computers for the routine stuff they're good at and liberate your team for the skilled stuff they are good at. Then your team have a better time and your books are better um, and you can produce more stuff more easily. You know, and it's a win for everyone. So you know, on-screen editing with Microsoft Word, that was an accidental win because Word was not designed for us. Yep. It was designed for businesses. It, it developed and gained all sorts of abilities that turned out to be useful for us in publishing. So we got search and place, we got spell check, which is kind of useful. So that, that was great. And then we got styling. So you suddenly cut out a stage where you used to have to go through galley proofs and mark, this is a heading one, this is a heading two, this is a paragraph, this is an indented paragraph, this is a bulleted list, just by hand, tagging everything. But if you style a Word file, then it automatically pulls into InDesign and is already styled in the correct way. So that's great. But other parts of the process haven't really gained that level of automation yet. I mean, silly stuff like, you know, there are scheduling systems out there, but for a lot of people, they're still drawing up manual schedules in a spreadsheet. Yep. And they're also using tools that were not made for publishing. Exactly that. Some stuff, it works where you can take something generic. I mean, I know you folks use uh, some project management software, and that's, a, that's an excellent example of why would we build publishing-specific project management because project management's a, a kind of a general skill. So if we can bring in something that's really good, Let's do that, and then let's build the stuff that's specific to us when we need to. Yep. So, you know, the specific workflows that we have, like the stuff that you folks are doing, that makes sense because, you know, that no one else really does that in the same way. So we know the problem so we can solve it. And that's where I ended up doing setting up my own business because I got so annoyed managing an editorial team 
being asked to do more with less, more quickly, more cheaply, being stuck against tools that simply don't let us do it. Because traditionally we worked on paper and that had its advantages, but it was slow, it was expensive. It's not great for collaboration, all these kinds of things. Mm. And the only on-screen option we had was working in Acrobat. Proofreading Acrobat is horrific because it's not designed for that job. It's designed to, well, actually originally, it was kind of designed for a print document to be distributable electronically. It's got some markup tools, but it's very, very limited. And as proofreaders, we had, over the decades, evolved some very sophisticated ways of marking up paper proofs so that everything was very efficient and very quick and very clear. So if you want to delete a piece of text, you drew a line through it and put a squiggle in the margin. And it's a very specific squiggle, right? Exactly that. And if you wanted to make something italic, you'd underline it and put a different thing, symbol in the margin. You know, Everything had its own symbol. And there are various different standards. The British have the British standard, the BSI markup. The Americans have the Chicago Manual of Style. There's an ISO standard. But you have this system. When you go to InDesign, all of a sudden, you have post-it notes. And that's all you have. <laughs> well, you have the you can strike text through. You can underline it. You can highlight it. And you can insert text and type. But that's it. Yep. It's like, I mean, I always liken it to, it's kind of like working with boxing gloves on. You're kind of yeah. bashing at it, but you can't get the accuracy. And so it takes longer. It takes 20 to 25% longer to work on screen in Acrobat than it does to work on paper. Because you have to write everything out longhand. Please take this piece of text and move it over there. This text should be Helvetica, not Times New Roman. Whatever. You have to explain everything. And anytime computers are making your life harder, something has gone wrong. You know, it's a sign that there's, there's a problem there. There must be a way of doing proofreading on screen that isn't completely horrific. I was actually, the, the genesis of it was I was at a conference in New York, the old Tools of Change conference with some friends, yeah. uh, Laura and Gavin, who founded Book Machine. And they were talking about how they'd started a book machine and the problems they tr were trying to solve with that. And I, th I was walking back to the hotel after dinner and thinking, you know, you could do that with software and that, yeah, that would work. And by the time I got back to the hotel, kind of a 20 minute walk, I had in my head the genesis of what became Future Proofs. And that was fundamentally about, was about exactly this thing of precise markup because computers are bad at random stuff at ill-defined stuff. They're good at well-defined stuff. And as, copy, as proofreaders, we had these proofreading standards and symbols and a structure. And it was a case of, oh, computers like structure. So if I can connect the symbol to the structure, yes, that would work. A bit of this and a bit of that. And, and there were three key ideas. It was about gesture-based markup. It was about collaboration. And it was about data and project management. And all of those three things were basically in my head by the time I got back to the hotel. And I pondered it over the next few months, and I talked to people and did research and so forth. Well, my team was still struggling, <laughs> trying to make this whole thing work. And eventually, I was made redundant. And I thought, excellent, that's good timing. And so I started the business. But it's still that thing of finding the right tool for the right job. As you say, tools from outside can be great if they happen to solve the problem that we're solving. The problem I had was that Acrobat was solving a completely different problem and didn't really solve the problem of proofreading. And the, the issue I think that publishers have at the moment is they're doing one of two things. They're working on paper or they're working on PDF with Acrobat or Foxit or Preview, or whatever piece of software. They all work the same way because it's the same file format. 
And it's about half and half, I reckon, these days. There's still a lot of people working on paper and a lot of people working on screen. And most editors I talk to put up with working in PDF because they think it's the only way. Most people don't have, aren't, aren't used to the software world where you can just create a tool. And that way of thinking that actually the world could be better if only, because most of us are too busy doing our actual jobs to yep, be able sure. to step back and go, ooh, yes, you know, that there is there is a better way of doing this potentially. Yeah, actually feeling a pain point here. And uh, I think being aware of when something is making you feel a little bit resentful is is a good signal. I remember my, my mother was a great publisher many years ago saying, when you get that resentful feeling in the pit of your stomach about the work you're doing, it's because it's not your job. What you're doing right then is not what you're meant to be doing. I mean, it, it is interesting. When I'm, I'm not a natural salesperson, but when I go out and sort of talking to people about future proof and saying, you know, there, there is a better way. Generally, if you go in trying to sell things to editors, they sit there with their arms crossed and it's going, no, not interested in new stuff. I know how my job works. I'm just going to stick with that. But within about five or 10 minutes, I can see them starting to lean forward and go, ooh, ooh. Because most of the time, as someone in publishing, when you're being sold to, you're being sold to by tech people who have a shiny toy they want you to buy. I'm not that. I'm an editor. And I'm, I always come at it with, you know, here's a problem that I've had. I think you might have the same problem, and here's how I think I've solved it. And the message is always, you know, if you're happy with how you're working, great. That's brilliant. If you're not happy maybe here's a way of improving things and i think that's the making that step to change can be good can can be the, the trickiest thing for i think for a lot of people a lot of teams because because we're so busy in part i think they're super busy and usually a new tool requires some kind of investment usually money right and often time obviously and that feeling of of risk when you change your workflow and one of the difficult things with the money side of it is that usually you're buying the tool because it's going to save you time. Therefore, the money you're saving is in salaries. And that's very hard to measure in companies, <laughs> weirdly. It's almost yeah. to say, well, this new tool is going to cost us X to set up and to run, but you don't have any direct cost to compare it to. You've got to somehow quantify your salary time, which is surprisingly difficult. It also means that those of us who are selling technology products that we know will make people's lives easier have a hard time sometimes helping people do the maths, do the cost-benefit analysis. And that must affect, you know, much more than just future proofs. But how do you approach that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it is a big one. I mean, I've once, to be fair, only once or twice come across the kind of extreme version of that, where for us, we're focusing on proofreading. And we charge people money to use our service to make proofreading go more smoothly. And I've only once or twice come across the thing where they, they expect to make all of these, the money they pay us back in reduced freelancer costs. Mm. Yes, you are going to save a bit of money there, but most of it is your in-house team. As you said, it's that salaried employee where they're spending time chasing around after project status data. They're spending time chasing over what work has been done. They're spending time desperately trying to find what changes have been made on that version of Wildbuck. Or they're dealing with an author who's complaining that changes have been made on their book when they never said they could that that should happen. You know, you're chasing through piles of paper or a history in an email chain or something. And that's a lot of wasted time. As you say, it's not the stuff you became an editor to do. Yep. You want to spend your time on the book. We have kind of a, a kind of various places where we say, you know, you're going to save 
money here. You're going to get an ROI of, you know, two or three times what you spend or whatever it might be. Every publisher is different in their own workflow. So I don't honestly think there's a generic answer to this. It's always a case of listening to a particular person or particular publisher and saying, okay, great, I see how you're working. Here is probably where you're going to see the benefit. For us, where people see the benefits, they save some time in markup. They do because it's more effective. The big win there, as much as anything, is annoyance. <laughs> the, the, the editors are less annoyed and the freelancers and authors are less annoyed with their work, which is kind of a very hard thing to quantify. But we do see some savings there. We see a big saving in collaboration and communication because it's, it tends to be very siloed and disparate and scattered. There'll be some emails, there'll be some phone calls, and there'll be some things written on pieces of paper, and there'll be some things written on the proofs themselves. And we try and bring all of that together and make it more manageable, less email, less sort of random phone calls and stuff because it's all right there. And that is a, was an unexpected big win. And the third one is in terms of insight. And that, that's, again, hard to quantify because publishers are used to not knowing stuff. Mm. They're used to not knowing how the project's going because they've sent the stuff out of house and they're used to just saying, well, I'll know when it comes back. They're not used to being able to go, oh, well, I can see the author spent four hours on it and they're three quarters of the way through, so it's probably going to come back on Thursday. But we can tell them that. We can show them, we can give them data about overall performance, You know, how many corrections are being made in all your projects, how many of them are sort of editorial changes and how many of them are designer errors. Um, what types of change are they? You know, there's, what you can do with data is really interesting these days. And we catch it by accident because you have to catch it to do the markup, but you can then start to analyze it. And that's kind of really interesting to me. And again, quantifying that, I think it's less, it's less about being able to give an ROI figure for us quite often. It's about being able to give a business case because some of this stuff is new. So that you can say, okay, it can cost you X amount. And you'll save Y amount in direct cost and Z amount in indirect costs. But you're also going to gain these capabilities that you've never had before that are going to make your life as a, and very often as a manager, much better. Yeah, absolutely. There was a time when you could define publishers as this very particular industry sector, and it's just impossible to do now. The sector itself is broader and more diverse, but increasingly any organization can be a publisher. The people you're speaking to, what kind of organisations are they actually running these days? It, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the kind of the, there are two sides to it, aren't there? I mean, we we talk to a fairly defined group of people who are publishers in the traditional sense, who are doing high quality, high stakes illustrated content by and large. Uh, we do deal with some nonfiction uh, text and some fiction text and stuff as well. But primarily, it's the people who have a high investment in the proofreading stages, because that's what we do. It's, as you say, it's been fascinating the last 25 years watching what we used to think of as publishing fragment and break apart. We used to think publishing was an industry. And now you look at it and you think, yeah, I mean, realistically, what have science journals and erotic fiction got to do with one another, other than that they used to produce their product on a printed codex? They have different commercial models different audiences, different business structures, different content types, different everything, you know, <laughs> there's almost nothing, but they're both publishing somehow. And there are other businesses that publish, but that were never part of the publishing sphere. Standards organizations, banks, engineering firms produce huge amounts of printed content. We sit kind of deliberately within publishing, traditional publishing, 
because the language we speak is the language of publishing. We talk about proofreading. We talk about editors and authors and typesetters and designers. We keep looking at each other and going, you know, we know we could take this into finance or legal stuff or, you know, where they have similar document quality control issues. And there are definite advantages that our platform could take, but we'd have to change stuff. We'd have to change the language we use. We'd have to change some of the workflow and stuff. So we haven't done it yet. That's really interesting. I, I think that there is so much to be said for software that knows who it's for. And we found ourselves in a time in the world where everyone expects every technology product to do everything for everybody. And that's the exact opposite of good software. Good software does a very particular thing for a very particular kind of person. I, for one, am really chuffed that you're producing software for publishers by publishers because, as you've said, so much of the software we use in publishing was created in other industries and then we co-opted it in publishing, uh, which means it isn't quite what we really need. And then we end up packing our way <laughs> along and getting annoyed with it. So, so that's fantastic. Increasingly, it would be nice to see more of those. Do you think it's simply a matter of growing technical skills within publishing to start seeing other new ideas and approaches emerge? Or do you think that because of the nature of book publishing, bookmaking, publishing will always be about the quality of its products and there won't be a lot of people in publishing working on the nature of the tools? Is all that criticism of publishing being slow unfounded, perhaps? <laughs> publishing is definitely slow. And it's definitely has a traditionalist mindset because you know, if something works, why break it? The situation we're in is that some things have broken. And if you're in a situation where something has broken and you're not acknowledging that, then you have a problem. And I think actually both things you suggest are true. I think there will always be a minority of people in publishing who are interested in that in fixing process because that's just human nature. Most people don't care or don't care sufficiently. And that's perfectly reasonable. But you need enough people who care. Otherwise, you'll never solve your problems. So we should be fostering that mindset of, yeah, this is broken. Well, how can we fix it? Or uh, don't really think that's where how we want to be doing it. I know we've done it that way for the last 10 years, but did we do it that way deliberately? And is it still the right answer? And the, the way I think you empower those people, so you've got, first of all, you've got to foster them and encourage that mindset and freedom. And once you've got them, you need some of them to have some technical skill and insight. Otherwise, they won't be able to see the solution. And it's that creativity, I think, that's going to take us forward. Fantastic. John, where can people find what you're working on now? And are there other projects you're working on now that uh, we should point people to as well? Well, yes. Futureproofs lives at wearefutureproofs.com. If you want to know how to do proofreading on screen better, come and talk to us. I mean, talking about kind of um, learning to code and stuff, I am involved in a second project. I'm working with a friend on a business called Umbrella Analytics, where we're taking technology and data and applying it to the problems of diversity and inclusion in our businesses. Having some ability to, to take code has meant that we can build something that's genuinely useful. And that's really exciting, as you can tell. But that's a whole different thing. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating topic and one that is part of publishing as well. So maybe we'll get to talk about it one day. John, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've learned a lot. Well, thanks. It's always good to talk to you. 
You can send us your own bookmaking topics and conundrums and questions at howbooksaremade.com and we'll tackle those in future episodes. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in sunny Cape Town, South Africa.